0: Well, happy Father's Day to all of the dads and granddads in the room and watching online today. And I got to tell you, it was before the first service began. I was backstage and I looked at this little pen that they passed out to everybody and I got to fooling with it. And I thought, oh my, this thing's incredible. I don't know what, don't throw this away. Give it to me if you don't want it. I checked this thing out. It's a stylus. It is a compass, it is a flashlight, it is a screwdriver, and praise the Lord, it's an ink pen. (laughs) And any of them that are left over after today, I'm going to hoard them because I believe you could survive the apocalypse with this thing. (laughs) So pretty cool little Father's Day gift. Jesus declares himself to be the light of the world. And then he does something. I always find this kind of interesting. He declares himself to be the light of the world. That his presence casts out the darkness. When he shows up, dark's got to go because light's here. And then then he says, you are the light of the world. He's talking to the church. And we become the light of the world because he, the light of the world, moves inside of us. And we get out in the world and we do the same thing he does which our presence, because he is the light inside of us, casts out the darkness. We don't take this light and hide it. We don't put it under a bushel. We don't, we're not ashamed of it. We're not embarrassed by it. It is here to shine, to cast out the darkness. And that's the reason for this series. I began today with this title called Victim. It's a two-part series. We'll finish it next Sunday, Lord willing. And I want to begin with a question. What's the first thing you think about when I say victim? It's a relevant word in today's culture. What about victimized or oppressed? What do you think about? Does this have any application in your life, in the world we live in today? Let me ask this. Does this word make you think about you? In other words, you kind of see yourself as a victim of circumstance, that something happened and now you're underneath of that? Or or, does it, or is it you see somebody else in that circumstance, a victim, and they're underneath of that? Do you think you're a victim? You've been victimized by someone, something in your life. A lot of people do. Do you feel like you currently or have been victimized or oppressed by someone or something in your life? Someone took advantage of you. There was a power that was over you that took advantage of you or circumstances themselves have victimized you. You became a victim of circumstances or a victim of people or a victim of society. Victimization is real. Let me me lay a foundation. Victimization is real, and yes, there are victims. It's a real issue. It's a big point. It's real. I, I don't come today to make light of those who have been victimized. Oppression is real, and yes, there are many that have been and are being oppressed. Oppressed by people, oppressed by powers, society. Yes, it's true. So the question today is not about the reality of oppressed victims, whether they exist or not, that's not it. The question today is, what do you do about it when you find yourself in the situation? What do I do about it? How do I respond when I find myself or find others in this position where they are under victimization or under oppression or circumstances have come on top of them that seem overwhelming? What should a victim do when they feel like they've been victimized? What should the oppressed do when they feel oppressed by an oppressor? Do you think you're the first person to feel like you've been victimized or oppressed in the world? Is this new or has this been going on since the beginning of all mankind? So here's really where I'm going, especially right now. Should Christians see this issue differently than the world? Because the world sees this issue. I mean, just look around. This is a pretty popular topic now. Should Christians see this issue different than the world? And I ask that by saying, what does the Bible say? And the reason for today's sermon is I've noticed that many Christians are falling victim to the victimized and depressed culture. Let me say it again. It's even infiltrated into the church. So we need to clear this up. Many Christians are falling victim to this victimized and oppressed culture. And I understand why. On the surface, it sounds so compassionate. On the surface, it sounds kind of loving. But when you dig down underneath of it, it's got a rotten core. Let me give you an example. Maybe you've heard people talking about what I'm about to bring up, and you've heard the word, in fact, it's really a buzzword now. You can open up anything and any kind of news media, and it's in there. But really, you hear them talking about it, and you kind of think you understand it, but down deep, if you were asked to explain it, you couldn't. Critical race theory. In fact, if I were to poll the audience today what it means, I'd just be curious what I'd get back. I don't know. Well, it's become a hotbed issue. In fact, the Florida's governor, uh, DeSantis, actually kind of led the charge, and he, he passed a law inside of Florida that it would be illegal for school teachers to teach critical race theory in the state of Florida. 21 other states have now joined in with similar legislation about critical race theory. And if you're in the room today, like most people, and you really have no idea what it even is, but you hear people talking about it, let me give you the simple definition. It's an idea that there are two inherent groups of people on the earth, two, two inherent groups of people, the oppressed and the oppressors, the victims and the victimizers, And here's the craziest part about this critical race theory, is the oppressed and the oppressor, the victims and the victimizers, are singularly described by the color of a person's skin. For example, critical race theory says that all white people are racist and they can't help it. It's inherent to their nature. So white people can't fix racism because they're all racist and they don't even know it. Let me make something really clear at this point. Are there racists? Yes, there are racists. There are white racists and there are black racists. There are racists, yes, but not every white person is a racist. That's foolishness and that concept Itself, just saying that, is a form of racism in itself. Declaring that someone thinks or acts a certain way simply because of the color of their skin, declaring openly that someone thinks or acts a certain way simply because of the tone of their skin, is the very definition of racism. And that's what critical race theory does. Let me take it a step further. Today I told you Jesus declared himself as the light of the world. and He put the light inside of us. So now we're the light of the world. You know what the light of the world is? It's called truth. And here comes the truth. Listen, this is infiltrated into the church too. Bible-believing Christians cannot accept this worldly notion of races at all. We can't do it. We can't even accept the idea of races. We believe there's only one race. Do you understand? And that's come into the church. We believe there's only one race, the human race. We all came from Adam, and we came from Eve. And inside the church, there are people now that fall into this worldview that there are different races of people. Where did you get that? You got it from the world. The Bible declares that we all came from Adam and Eve. In fact, the Apostle Paul— In the New Testament, he goes to Athens, Greece, and he goes to Athens, Greece, and he preaches to the intellectual elites of his day. And to the intellectual elites of his day, he says this, from one man, he's talking about Adam, from one man, one blood, one man, one blood, God created every nation, all mankind. Now listen, you can't make it more clear than that. There are no races. There is the human race. We are all under God's creation. He created all of us. Our skin color differences, our eye shape differences have absolutely no influence on the character and heart of an individual, of that person, their spirit, their soul. It's got nothing to do with it. You know where it does come from? It's called evolution. Evolution teaches races. Do you know that? Did you learn that? Because it's truth. Evolution teaches races. It is evolution that teaches there are some races more advanced than other races because they started to evolve faster than other races people groups so some are further down the evolutionary chain than others and they're more advanced where does that come from doesn't come from scripture doesn't come from the church it can't be in the church there are no races that comes from evolution which is a lie in itself that ought to tell you the real truth about racism and it ought to tell you the real truth about the source of racism you know Satan It comes from Satan. Now, my message today is not about critical race theory. Somebody say hallelujah. Hallelujah. I only use that as a current example. I only use that as a current example of how Satan is trying to keep us fighting each other. He's trying to keep us fighting each other and keep us distracted from the truth. Hidden under the veil of darkness, keep us distracted from the truth that would set us free. Now, I told you this is a two-part series. Next week's going to be called and accountable. You you definitely need to hear the second part of this one. Today, we're going to do something. We're going to seek truth. Jesus reveals Himself as the light of the world. The Word of God is truth. We're going to seek the real truth about this word, victims, and that those who are oppressed. Because I want to know what God's plan is to deal with this issue. Not not the world's plan, not government's plan. I want to know what God's plan is to deal with this issue. I've already said this issue is real. There are people who are victims, and there are people who victimize people. In Colossians 2, verse 8, the Apostle Paul warns the church and says, don't let anyone capture you with empty philosophies and high-sounding nonsense. And I'm going to label critical race theory in this category. Don't let anyone capture you with empty philosophies, high-sounding nonsense that come from human thinking and from the spiritual powers of this world. That's Satan. Rather than from Christ. So let me explain where we're going today many people feel like their trouble in life is somebody else's fault they've been victimized and oppressed by someone by society or just their simple circumstances I admit again second time there are victims And there is real oppression in the world. I freely admit that truth. I'm not arguing that truth. The question for us today is this. Should Christians see this issue the same way as the world does? No, we cannot. Does the word of God give clarity on this issue of the victimized and the oppressed? Yes, it does. And we're going to look at it. So let's begin with the time when God called out a man Named Abram. Eventually his name would be Abraham. And listen real careful to this next part. This is after the flood. God's going to create a group of people. A unique group of people called the children of God. Everyone who's ever lived on the earth is God's creation. But not everyone is God's child. Did you hear me? Because a lot of people, I hear it in the church, well, we're all God's children. No, it's not true. You made that up. It's not true. You made it up to make yourself feel good or to make somebody else feel good. Everybody is God's creation, yes. But not everyone is God's child. The children of God are a unique group of people. And this particular part begins with a man named Abram, Abraham. And God is going to come into Abraham's life and he's going to initiate a divine bloodline, a father child relationship, which would initiate the children of God relationship. It'll begin with one Abraham. Now, on Father's Day, this is really important because Abraham will have this ability, unlike anyone around him, to call God his father. And the people who flow from Abraham will be called throughout the scripture, the children of God. A unique bloodline. This is important. It's a question. Can God, listen carefully, can God and does God call out certain people and separate them from the world? Can God... And does God call out, say, hey, you, I'm going to call you over here and separate you from the rest of the world. Can he? Does he? Yes, he does. Let me give an example. On a big picture, he did it to the people of Israel in the Old Testament. He separated them from the world. He, he initiated it. They didn't initiate it. Abraham didn't say, hey, let me do this. No, God initiated it. He called somebody out. In the Old Testament, he did it through the Israelites, the Hebrews, the Jewish people. What about today? In the church age, he does it through the church. Where he calls out a group of people, and he separates them from the world, and they are called the children of God. Okay? Stay with me. A bloodline is created. A family order, God the Father, calls us His children. Can God and does God call out certain people, separate them from the world? Yes, it happened in the Old Testament to Israel, it happened in the New Testament to the church. It's happening right now to the church. Now I'm going to give you a hint right now. It has a lot more to do with the content of their hearts than the color of their skin. In fact, the color of their skin is irrelevant. Yes, this group of people under Abraham's lineage would be called out and separate people living under a covenant promise of God, initiated by God, carried out in power by God. So let me give you an example. In Deuteronomy 7, verse 6, this is how the divine bloodline is described in the time of Moses after Abraham, but it still holds true to describe what God did through Abraham. Deuteronomy 7, 6, for you... He's not talking to everybody. He's talking about a called out group of people. You are a holy people. And why are they holy? Because you belong to God. My presence has made you holy. You belong to the Lord your God. Of all the people on the earth, the Lord God has chosen you, Israel, to be his own special treasure. Does God do it? Well, obviously he does it because this is an example. Let me give you another one. Deuteronomy 14, 2. You have been set apart as holy to the Lord. He's talking specifically to Israel, the children of Abraham. You are, you have been set apart as holy to the Lord, your God. And he has chosen you from all the nations of the earth. Everybody is God's creation, but not everybody is God's child. He has chosen you from all the nations of the earth to be his own special treasure. This is how God describes those who will find themselves under this called out and chosen covenant between God and Abraham, this divine bloodline. These people who are treasured by God will do something. And that's why I'm using that illustration today. These people chosen by God will see life different than the world. They will live life different than the world. You are a called out, chosen, holy people. And because you're called out, chosen, holy, you're not going to see the world like those other people of the world do. You can't. Because God's light is in your darkness. So you see things different. And it's with that context that I must tell you where it all began with Abraham. This was God's announcement to Abraham when he entered into what I like to call the smoking fire pot called out in chosen covenant blood because there's God's going to come down with Abraham and he's going to make this smoking fire pot covenant of blood thing and it's going to seal the eternal covenant between God and Abraham and the children that will flow from Abraham's life. Which, by the way, he he doesn't even have any children when this happened. And I'm going to give you a hint. It's the first time. What I'm about to read to you kind of amazes me. It is the first time in the Bible that you will find the word oppressed. In the called out covenant moment, you will also find the word oppressed. Both in the same scene. Interesting. Genesis 15 verse 12. And when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram. And behold, terror and great darkness fell upon Abram. God said to Abram, know for certain that your descendants will be strangers. Know for certain that your descendants, he doesn't even have any descendants. And yet God's telling him the future. Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs where they will be enslaved and oppressed. No, no, don't miss this. They will, your, your future generations, those are going to come from your body, are going to be slaves and oppressed four hundred years. But I will also judge the nation whom they will serve, and afterwards they will come out with many possessions. Let there be no doubt today that this enslaved and oppressed prophecy, it is a prophecy of God to Abram, came at the same time, came at the same time that God gave a called out and chosen covenant promise blessing. They came together. If you know anything about the story, God has come to Abraham and just picked him out and said, you, that from you, you're going to have more children than the stars of the sky, more children than the sands of the sea. All the nations of the earth are going to be blessed by what I'm about to do through you and your family. And I'm going to be with you and I'm going to protect you and I'm going to rock your world and the whole world's going to change because of what I'm going to do in your life. But in the same event, in the same event, he tells them that your descendants will be slaved and oppressed for 400 years. Together, together. The called out blessing and the enslaved depressed promise come at the same time. They come together. They come together. They don't seem to fit together. And I'll explain why. Let's go back to verse 1. Same chapter. Verse 1. Sometime later, the Lord spoke to Abram in a vision and said to him, Don't be afraid, Abram, for I will protect you and your reward will be great. Why does Abram need protection? Because he's about to receive the covenant called out promise of God that will make him very different from the world. And when you get the called out covenant promise of God that separates you from the world, the world won't like you. They'll be against you because you become different than they have. The land, think about the blessing, the land, the promised land, the children more than the stars of the sky, the protection of God, all of that alongside of this other promise. Listen, you got to get this other, there's a promise. It's easy to focus on the promise. If you're going to have kids, they're going to be more than the stars of the sky, and I'm going to bless you, I'm going to protect you, I'm going to prosper you. You're going to get this land, and I'll bless all the nations through you. But there's another promise in there. Your children are going to be oppressed. And enslaved for 400 years. You and I might struggle with those two statement promises being in the same passage to the same people. Because they don't look like they fit. Why are you going to bless me and then oppress me? Why does the blessing come with oppression and slavery? Can't we just do the blessing? I'll give you a hint. You're called out people. And for now, there's still other people on the earth. And everybody's not called out. You see, I've concluded by studying this that there's two categories. There's the blessed part of the promise and there's the victim part of the promise. You're going to be victimized by Egypt, by Pharaoh. You'll be blessed, but you'll also be victimized. But what if, listen, what if the two could be joined? Rather than be blessed and the victims, what if you could be blessed victims? Rather than blessed and victims, you could be blessed victims. Stay with me. You see, the world, when you looked at this covenant from God to Abraham, the world would definitely see those two events as inconsistent and troublesome. But should Christians see this like the world does? No, we can't. Whether you like it or not, because I'm going to tell you, if I just look at this at face value, I think, wow, why such a blessing followed by such an announcement of bondage? 400 years. There'll be families in that 400 years. That's all they'll ever know is slavery. Whether you like it or not, whether you agree with it to be a good idea, Lord, or not, it happened. It happened exactly as God said it would. The grandson of Abraham, Jacob, whose name would be changed to Israel, and all of his sons would move to Egypt where they would eventually be enslaved and oppressed for 400 years. Now here's where it's interesting. The world on the outside reading this story would say that they got enslaved and oppressed because of a famine that happened to happen in Canaan. But there's another side you would say, no, it's not because of a famine in Canaan. That's a side story. It's because of a promise that God made to Abraham in the beginning. victimized and oppressed for 400 years should Christians see this topic of victim in the same way the world sees it you see the world sees that the circumstances of the famine created the victimization but the word says no it's the covenant promise of God that you will experience victimization when I call you out see two different perspectives or is it possible because here's where it really goes because you might wonder why would God even do that is it possible that God uses victimization and oppression to reveal his great name and his glory to the whole world Is it possible that that's one of God's greatest methods to demonstrate himself, his glory, his mercy, himself as a savior, himself as a deliverer? At the end of those 400 years of victimization and oppression, God reveals this to Moses about Pharaoh. Because you got two choices. Was the bondage because of a, a, a random act of famine, or was it because of the covenant promise of Abraham? Here we go. Exodus nine thirteen. Then the Lord said to Moses, get up early in the morning, stand before Pharaoh. Tell him this is what the Lord, the God of the Hebrews says. It'd be so easy to read over this, but you can't. Tell him to let my people go. What, what do you mean my people? I told you they're called out. They're, they're my people now. Everybody's God's creation, but not everybody's God's child. Let my people go. So they can worship me. And if you don't, Pharaoh, I will send more plagues on you and your officials and your people. And then you will know there is no one like me in all the earth. But now, excuse me, by now, I could have lifted my hand and struck you and your people with a plague to wipe you off the face of the earth. But I have spared you, Pharaoh. I have spared you, Egypt, for a purpose. Anybody know the purpose? It would help you understand this storyline today. To show you my power and to spread my fame throughout the earth. But you still lord it over my people and refuse to let them go. So tomorrow at this time, I will send a hailstorm more devastating than any in all of the history of Egypt. So I'm going to ask you a question. Was it wrong for God to call out Abraham and his future generations and offer them an eternal, divine, bloodline blessing? And then, and then after calling them out, after giving them the blessing, and then allow them to be victimized and oppressed as slaves for 400 years. Is that wrong? Does that sound wrong to you? Or does it sound like, well, that's a good idea should the Israelites and here's the reason I ask so at the end of the 400 years knowing that this happened as a covenant promise between God and Abraham their forefather when Moses comes and says I have been called by the same God of Abraham to now lead you out of the into the wilderness into the promised land should they follow him should they follow him because if if the promise led them into slavery should they trust him now Stay with me. Is he trustworthy? And what does this, because then the question logically, and what does this ancient story have to do with us today, preacher? Would you remind me? Here's my second hint for today. That passage I just read to you is in the New Testament too. You think that's an accident? It's in the New Testament book of Hebrews, which means it applies specifically to the called out chosen church. And that's you. And that's me. And we better be paying attention. Romans, here it is. Romans 9, 14. Are we saying God was unfair? (laughs) Is God unfair to call you, offer you this covenant blessing, and then allow you to experience slavery, bondage, victimization? Is God unfair? Of course not. For God said to Moses, this is New Testament. For God said to Moses, I will show mercy to anyone I choose, and I'll show compassion to anyone I choose. So it is God who decides to show mercy. We can neither choose it nor work for it. For the scriptures say that God told Pharaoh, I have appointed you for the very purpose I have appointed you, Pharaoh, for the very purpose of displaying my power in you to spread my fame throughout the earth. So you see, God chooses to show mercy to some and he chooses to harden the hearts of others so they refuse to listen. So here comes a question. Was Pharaoh a victim in Moses' story? Could could he whoop out the victim card? I'm a victim. I'm a victim of circumstance. I am free. I get out of jail free. Is he a victim? He got no control. Is God unfair? Do you? Now now that's Pharaoh's story. This is a New Testament story. It's a church story. Are you a victim? Do you think God's unfair? Do you feel like there's circumstances, people's powers in your life that have victimized you? Do you feel like all the troubles in your life are somebody else's fault? Because I'm going to tell you, the church is full of people who think like that. Let me give you an example. This is that thinking. If it weren't for that event in my life, looking back somewhere in your life, if it weren't for that event in my life, my life would be totally different. Is that you? If I were born, maybe it's this one. If I were born to a different family rather than that bunch of nuts that I came out of, if I were born to a different family and they had different circumstances, my whole life would be different. Is that you? Maybe you feel like God has allowed people or powers to victimize and oppress you, and you're not sure how to take that. Why would God allow that to happen in my life? Because I'm called out and chosen, so why am I have to suffer any kind of circumstantial hardship or bondage or slavery or oppression or victimization? Why? Remember earlier in the Abraham story, he got a blessing and he got the announcement of oppression in the same event. Is it possible that you can have blessed and victim and become a blessed victim stay with me can they go together is any of this new or is it as old as mankind itself all the way back to the garden of eden all the way back to adam himself was there any victimization or oppression in the garden of eden no not in the beginning. It was good. It was very good. And then trouble came to paradise. In the beginning, in the garden, trouble came to paradise. Unless you're one of those who still wants to hang on to evolution, then I have no idea how you paint the story. Listen carefully to what I'm about to tell you. The victimizer and oppressor's name is Satan. And when I was studying this, something just came to me. Satan, in the garden, he convinced perfect people to become victims. Stay with me. Satan did something that is still amazing to me today because it's still happening today. Satan has this power to make perfect people. Now, now I'll explain what I mean by that in a moment. In the garden, it was clear. He made perfect people become victims. He had that kind of power to make perfect people. People become what they were not supposed to be. He, it's his business to make perfect people become victims. Do you doubt that? I want to show you what it looks like. Satan convinced the woman to eat of the forbidden fruit, that she, and then she gave it to her husband. Everybody knows that story. And guess what happens next? Guess what happens next? God comes and he calls them to account. It's called personal responsibility. Okay, I know it's kind of a strange idea today. It's called personal responsibility. And and next week's topic, we'll deal heavily heavily with that. Before I read it to you, let me me give you this truth. The bad thing about free will, everybody wants free will because free will is connected to freedom and liberty. Everybody wants free will. But you know what the bad part of free will is? It comes with personal responsibility. You get to choose, but you got to live with the consequences of your choice. Well, I'd like to be able to choose, but I don't want any negative consequences of my choosings. That's not how it works. The idea that each of us bears the responsibility of our actions in accordance to the word of God. There is a a universal law that each of us will bear the responsibility according to the word of God. Free will gives us the ability to choose who we will listen to, what we will follow, what we will do. But we also bear the responsibility of that personal responsibility. So here it comes Adam and Eve have sinned. So God calls Adam, calls him in, calls him to accept personal responsibility for his actions. But here it comes. And before I read it, I'm going to ask you a question Is Adam a victim? Is he a victim? Stay with me. Genesis 3 verse 9. The Lord called to the man. Where are you? He replied, I heard you walking in the garden. So I hid. I was afraid because I was naked. Who told you you were naked? The Lord God asked. Have you eaten from the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat? Now I need to pause for a moment. God is bringing up. This truth statement that is, I told you beforehand that you can't eat of this tree. Okay, so you didn't accidentally fall into this. I told you in advance. Did you eat of the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat? So here's God's word, standing as the truth that we will all be accountable for. We must bear responsibility for how we deal with it. And the man replied, it was the woman you gave me. She did it. It was her. Is Adam the victim? Yeah, he's the victim of Eve. She did it. The man replied, it's the woman you gave me who gave me the fruit and I ate it. Do you see it? Adam is pulling out his victim card. The woman you gave me has victimized and oppressed me. It's her fault. She did it. You know, in that moment, Satan did what Satan does. He made perfect people become victims. Why? How? It's not my fault. Even though you, did God tell you in advance that that tree, it's not my fault. She did it. So, it doesn't give a lot of detail around that particular event. I believe there probably is more detail. God calls in the woman, calls her like he called Adam to accept personal responsibility for her actions before God. Verse 13, then the Lord God asked the woman, what have you done? The serpent did it. The serpent deceived me, she replied. That's why I ate it. It's all someone else's fault. Did Adam know the word of God? Yes. It's all someone else's fault. Did Eve know the word of God? Yes. Listen carefully, because I know some people could misquote me on this. I am not denying the deceitful power of Satan here. I'm not. He did deceive them. Yes, he did. But, but. But they did know the word of God in advance. They knew in advance. If you eat of this tree, you will surely die. She even quotes it to Satan. Did God really say yes? He said, if I eat of this, I'll die. Did they know? Yes. Where's the personal responsibility? It's his fault. It's her fault. Victimization is real. Yes, there are victims. It's a real issue. Oppression is real. And yes, there are many that have been oppressed. We all have become victimized and oppressed by Satan. And right now, whether you want to admit it or not, and it's not even a good topic to talk about, we all live under the curse. The curse is the curse of sin and death, and we've all got it. We are right now victimized and oppressed by the curse of sin and death. And the question today is this, can blessed and victims go together in the same called out people? Can blessed and victims go together in the same called out people? So the question today is not about the reality of oppressed victims, but what do you do about it if you find yourself in that oppression, that situation? Here we go. What do Christians do in this issue of victimization and oppression? Do we make excuses? It's somebody else's fault. I can tell you in advance, that won't help anything. Can we seek vengeance or restitution from our oppressor? Because that seems to be a new modern thing, that if I can seek restitution if I can get my father's father's father to, that oppressed me, now you people can restore something to me, pay it off. Everything will be even. That will just lead to a meaningless life. That's all that's going to lead to. So what do we do? Remember, I'm talking to the called out followers of God, not the world. I'm specifically talking today to Christians those who have encountered the Word of God. The world is never going to get it, but I can tell you the church must get it. The church cannot look at life as a victim. Do you know why? The church cannot look at our life, our circumstance, as a victim because of something that happened to me back then. Do you know why? Because of this. What I'm about to read to you describes a power that turns victims into victors. Jesus reveals, in what I'm about to read to you, the very purpose of his coming. Why did Jesus become, why did God become flesh and dwell among us? Why did God remove his glory from heaven and come to planet earth? Why? Why? Jesus is about to reveal the purpose of his coming to his hometown people of Nazareth. This is so big. And I'm going to read it, and I'm going to see if you get it. Because I can tell you right now, the world certainly doesn't get it. Did the people in Nazareth get it? Are they victims? Are you a victim? Here we go, Luke 4, 14. Let Let me set this up. Jesus, in this moment... He has gone to the river Jordan. He was baptized by John the Baptist. He was taken into the wilderness, tempted by Satan for 40 days. After that, the gospel says he goes back to his hometown of Nazareth, and this happens. He returned to Galilee, filled with the Holy Spirit's power. Okay? Reports about him spread quickly throughout the whole region. He taught regularly in their synagogues and was praised by everyone. When he came to the village of Nazareth, his boyhood home, he went as usual to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read the Bible, to read the Old Testament scriptures. The scroll of Isaiah the prophet was handed to him. He unrolled the scroll, found a place where this was written. What's he going to read? What's he going, full of the Holy Spirit? What's he going to read? There's a whole. You read Isaiah; it's a big book. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Ooh, I got cold chills. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for He has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. Check that one off. I'm going to list you the victims and the oppressed of society. He has anointed me to come to the earth to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim that the captives, those slaves, are going to be released, that the blind are going to see, and the oppressed are going to be set free. And that the time of the Lord's favor has come. It's here now. He rolled up the Isaiah scroll, handed it back to the attendant, sat down. All the eyes in the synagogue looked at him intently, and then he began to speak to them these words, this scripture, the scripture you have just heard, has been fulfilled today. Jesus unrolls a 750-year-old Isaiah scroll and declares that he is the one Isaiah is talking about. He has come to bring good news, the gospel, to the poor, to the rejects of society, to the victims of society. I'm here to set you free. No more victims. He has come to release the captives, those who are bondage to slave and sin, the oppressed of the powers of the world. I'm here to set you free. That's why I came. He has come so the blind will see. See what? Freedom from their oppressors. He has come so the oppressed will be set free. No more victims. Yes, there is a victimizer. His name is Satan. And Jesus has come to set you free from his power. Yes, there is an oppressor. His name is Satan. And Jesus has come to give you victory over him. You will find this victory in Jesus how? Listen, church, nobody wants to talk about it. You will find this victory in Jesus how? By accepting personal responsibility for. For your life. And accepting this as truth. And what is that truth preacher? We are all sinners. And we have all fallen victim to Satan's lie. That story in the garden. Satan, Adam, me. That's you. That's me. We're all in this story. We have all fallen victim to Satan's lie. We're all sinners. We all heard the word of God, right? Did Adam, did you not know about the tree? Yeah. Eve, did you not know about the tree? Yeah. Do you not know about the way, the truth, and the life? Yeah. We all knew about the word of God, and yet we failed in our personal responsibility to follow God and to this truth. And here we are. In spiritual bondage and oppression. Living under the curse of our father Adam. And now Jesus is our Moses. Come to set us free. Ending our bondage, our slavery, and wanting to lead us into the promised land. But listen carefully. You will never find this freedom That I'm talking about today, you will never experience this freedom comes through Jesus Christ by blaming everyone else for your situation. You will never experience this liberty in Christ by blaming everybody else. You must acknowledge it's me, it's me, it's me, I'm a sinner. I have transgressed God's laws. Blaming everybody else would be equivalent to say that the 400 years of bondage of Israel in Egypt was because of a famine. It's because of random circumstances. And if it weren't for those random circumstances, my life would be fine. But if I could just change that, now if you change that, you'd still be a sinner. And you'd still be dying and you'd still be a slave to sin. You will never find this freedom by blaming everyone else for your situation. And you will never find this freedom by seeking vengeance from the oppressors of your life, the person who victimized you, the person who wronged you, the person that created your terrible circumstances. You will never find freedom seeking restitution from them. In fact, what did Jesus, our deliverer, say? Forgive them. Let it go let it go. We leave that vengeance and justice to our deliverer. He'll settle the accounts, not me. Now, Jesus has stood up among his hometown people in Nazareth, Nazareth, and revealed that he is their Moses, come to set them free from their victimization and oppression. This message then and now, it is the message to the New Testament church. The apostles preach this message. Jesus has come to set us in our day free from oppression. And I tell you this, today, if you are in Christ, if Christ is in you, you are no longer a victim. Our deliverer has come. And you must stop living like a victim. You must stop living by thinking that the circumstances of your life have somehow there your problem it isn't an outside problem it's an inside problem quit blaming the trouble of your life on somebody or something else acts 1038 and you know that God anointed Jesus of Nazareth With the Holy Spirit and with power. And then Jesus went around doing good and healing healing all who are oppressed by the devil. For God was with them. With him. Victimization come from Satan. Satan has this uncanny ability to make perfect people victims. Now here's where I want, I told you I would explain that. You see in Christ you're redeemed. If you're born again, you're redeemed. Your sins have been removed. As far as the east is from the west, you have been made perfect in the eyes of God. Why in the world, when that happens, would you ever pull the victim card out in your life? Why would you ever use the victim? You don't need the victim card anymore. You've been set free, right? Why in the world do you still have the victim card? You would never play the victim card. And you know what? That would so set us apart from the world. It's not somebody else's fault. It's just me, but I've been redeemed. My, you know, he's my father. I'm his child. I'm not a victim. You see, that's how the world thinks. That's how the world lives. We're supposed to be the light of the world that cast out the darkness. Light of the world, people don't have victim cards. They've given up their victim cards. They laid those down. Bondage and slavery are Satan's tools. Jesus came to set us free. But we must, but we must, but we must accept personal responsibility for our lives. Stop with the excuses. Stop playing the victim card. God can. Listen, what we don't understand until you read the scriptures, God can and will use your past to bring him glory. You're not a victim. He'll use your past. He'll use your days in bondage to give Him glory and reveal His glory to the people around you, but not while you hold the victim card. I'll prove it to you. You know, today, how many years has it been? We're still talking about the deliverer, God delivering two million people out of Egyptian bondage. We're still talking about all the miracles that He did in Pharaoh. In Egypt in the time of their oppression, God's glory shined even brighter. God has already dealt with our victimization and oppression. You don't need to wait for your Moses to come. He's already came. In fact, I declare to you that he is here today. There is one, our Moses, that has come to set us free from the oppressor satan but you must accept personal responsibility for your life stop blaming every problem in your life on somebody else that happened in your past so here's my closing today so how did i told you about jesus going to his hometown in nazareth unrolling the 750 year isaiah scroll and declaring i'm here i'm here so how did the people of nazareth respond to jesus's revelation how let me read it to you. Luke 4, 28. When they heard this, the people in the synagogue were furious. Jumping up, they mobbed him and forced him to the edge of a hill on which the town was built. They intended to push him over the cliff, but he passed right through the crowd and went on his way. Well, that's a big thank you, And Why? You ever look at this and say, what? What? Jesus came and said, I'm the Messiah you've all been waiting for for all these years. And I'm going to set all these people free and they try to push him off a cliff. The world would rather play the victim card than accept personal responsibility. Listen carefully. Satan is an amazing deceiver. In one hand, you hold the victim card. That's really not my fault. And over here... personal responsibility it really is my fault which one which one your past your circumstances your life up to this point it's always somebody else's fault you see here's the here's the reason i make such a big deal about the personal responsibility and the victim card victims never go to the cross of christ and bow down do you know why Victims never go, they got this card, this victim card. They never go to the cross of Christ and bow down. The cross of Christ is the place where you lay down your victim card. You accept personal responsibility. You confess your sin of rebellion against God and you ask him to forgive you of the very thing that you admit that you do. There's freedom in that. The Word of God is clear. 1 John 1, verse 8. If we claim we have no sin, it's somebody else's fault, it's not me. If we claim we have no sin, we're only fooling ourselves and we're not living in the truth. But if we confess our sin, To him he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all wickedness if we claim we've not sinned it's not me it's her it's not me it's him it's not me it's my circumstance it's my parents it's my boss it's this culture no it's not it's you it's you it's me it's me If we claim we have not sinned, we're calling God a liar and we show that his word has no place in our heart. It's me. Confessing our sin is to accept personal responsibility for my life and my sin. I am a sinner. It's not somebody else's fault. It's my fault. God is not a liar. Listen, I am. You see the difference? That's why Jesus puts it this way. In Luke 9, 23, he said to the crowd, if any of you wants to be my follower, you must turn from your selfish ways. You must take up a cross daily, and you must follow me. Do you understand what that means? People with victim cards never do this. You must turn from your selfish way, take up your cross daily, follow me. What's the consequences? If you try to hang on to your life, you just keep that victim card stuffed away in your pocket. If you try to hang on to your life, you're going to lose your life. But if you give up your life for my sake, you'll save it. Victims never take up their cross. Victims blame others for their cross. Victims never take up their cross. The cross is for their oppressors, not them. That's why they're victims. Jesus came to set the victims free. Let there be no doubt. Jesus carried my cross to Calvary. I admit it. I accept it. I am grateful for it. I acknowledge that what Jesus did on the cross that day should be what's happening to me today. It wasn't on him. It was on me. But he put it on him. The same 750-year-old Isaiah scroll that they read in that Nazareth synagogue also reveals this in advance, 750 years before Jesus goes to the cross. Isaiah 53, he was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he took our, whose infirmities? Mine. He took my infirmities and he carried my sorrow. It's not somebody else's fault. He took my infirmities. He took my sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for my transgressions. He was crushed for my iniquities. The punishment that brought me peace was upon him. And by his wounds, Terry Cooper has been healed. We are all, all, all like sheep. We've all gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. That's rebellion. We joined Satan when he took perfect people and made them victims. And the Lord has laid on him, the Father has laid on the Son, the iniquity of me and the iniquity of you. He was oppressed, he's perfect. And yet he's oppressed and afflicted yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before her shears is silent he did not open his mouth. You remember how we started today? With God to Abraham the first mention of oppression in the Bible was coming at the same time I'm going to give you a blessing and I'm going to give you Oppression, they're going to join together. And at some point in the future, people will see it as blessed and depression. Blessed and victims. Or they'll just see it as blessed victims. Which one? This was God's closing statement. I kind of read over it when I started. Here's what he says. But I will also judge the nation whom they will serve. And afterwards they will come out with many possessions. For you in the audience that have been legitimately victimized by someone, something in your life, Satan himself, listen, God will one day settle accounts. He's going to settle up. It won't be on you and it's not on me. He will settle accounts. He will hold the victimizers, Satan himself, accountable on the last day. Until then, Jesus told you and he told me, if you find yourself in this category, let it go. Let it go. Let it go. Forgive them. But I I don't let it go. Let it go. If you live your life as a victim, trapped in your past, your circumstances, you want to hold on to that victim card because it makes you feel good, it makes you a slave. Let it go. That's where freedom's at. Let it go. I told you earlier that everyone on the earth is God's creation. Not everyone is God's child. If you're in the room today and you have Jesus Christ in your life, if you've received Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you have accepted him, taken up a cross to follow him, you're a child of God. You're not a victim. (laughs) Everything in your past has already been taken care of and everything in your future has already been prepared. We don't need that victim card anymore. You're part of a divine bloodline and never in your life can you say it's somebody else's fault. It's you. You accepted responsibility. But if you're in the room today and the reality is you still hold that victim card, you still got it. Today would be the day you ought to lay it down. You come and you confess your sin. You confess your sin before God. Do it at the cross. Conf- it's, it's me. It's not somebody else. It's me. It's me. And Lord, I ask you to forgive me. If you confess your sin, he's faithful and just to forgive and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Don't call him a liar today. Accept him as truth. The invitation is open. Let's stand.